Ronnie Hawkins, brilliant guy. He met David. We became Hawks and we stayed on the road with Ronnie for about a year and a half and then he fired David. David nearly fainted because he'd never been fired. He knew what his status was and everybody knew he was brilliant, but that was Ronnie's M.O. David wasn't the first person he let go because he knew that he was pushing him out of the nest kind of thing, not in a vicious way. Playing 40 days in my hillbilly rock and roll stuff is not for David Foster. After David got fired, we stayed in Toronto for about a month. And it was while we were there that I suggested that we put our own band together. And this is before we were married. I said, we want to be together, so let's put a band together. And he said, if you can get Doug Edwards, Steve Pugsley, and Kat Hendricks, I'll put a band together. When we came back, David went to Victoria. I had to stay in Vancouver. They were all available. So I called David and I said, you better come back. We've got our band. I'm Peter McCulley. The BC musical group Skylark had a massive hit with the song Wildflower. 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of the album, as its surviving members B.J. Cook and David Foster were presented with a star on the BC Entertainment Hall of Fame's Starwalk. We'll chat with B.J. Cook on this edition of Today in BC. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today, B.J. Well, you're very welcome. I wanted to know how you get started in music growing up. How did you get interested in singing? I had a cousin who was a drummer. He worked in a a club downtown in Victoria called the 1313 Club, the Ted Spencer Orchestra. So I snuck up there when I was about 15. You had to be 21 then to get into the bars. And I snuck up there and I thought I was in a movie set or something. I just stood around with my mouth open like an idiot. And my cousin said to me, why don't you get up and sing a song? Because I used to sing at home with the family and parties. Gary Conway was his name. So I said, okay, sure, no problem. I'm not quite sure what number I did, but I sang something. And I got really a great response. So I went, that's it. That was the greatest feeling to have somebody clap and cheer when you sang. Oh, that's amazing. I wasn't interested in school anymore. That was the end of my my (laughs) education. So I just stopped going to school. I think I was in grade nine or something. And my parents, I can't even imagine what my parents were going through, but I started getting gigs. When I think about the money that you got paid, 10 bucks or whatever it was. But to me, it was a fortune. I was singing in the club. At one point, I was the scandal of Victoria because I had a child. uh, Like four weeks after I turned 17, I had a baby. And my dad sat down with me and said, do you want to marry this guy? Because you're underage and I can make him marry you. And I said, oh, God, no, I, I don't want to get married. I, I, I was one of those people that got caught right out of the gate. I didn't have a clue about anything. So he said, then we will keep this baby. It'll be our baby. And we'll raise her. We'll all raise her together. So my daughter, Tamara, is 64 years old. And she lives in Toronto right now. But We're best friends, and we love each other very much. So now I've had this child. It's a year later, and I'm singing in a bar, 
I'm 18 years old, and a guy named Jack Allen was the drummer in a band that was playing from Vancouver over on the island. And after my first set, he called me over and said, you got to go over to the mainland, kid. Like, you're a really good singer, and you're wasting your talent here. You get over there. He said, I'll take you. I had a child. I had responsibilities. And so I went to my parents. And they gave me the family allowance check to take with me, which was six bucks, by the way. I also found out I was adopted when I was pregnant. I actually wanted to go over to see if I could find my biological mother. I knew who my father was because he was my Uncle Gordon. I'd known him my whole life, and he and his girlfriend had me. I go over to find my biological mother, and I do. And she uh, knew everybody in Vancouver. And she took me down to the cave supper club and said, hey, my kid wants to be in show business. So I was in the chorus line at the cave. I was a showgirl and worked there till I was maybe 19 or 20. And the lead singer, Norman Nicholson, got sick. And I had to sing Henry Young who was at the induction, walked up to me and said, look, I, I have a band. Will you come and sing in my band? So that was the beginning. I left the cave and the, being a chorus girl. I understand one of the spots you regularly played was uh, a nightclub on Burrard called the Elegant Parlor, which was run by Tommy Chong. He was then a guitarist. It was the first person I ever met. I was 18 when I met Tommy. We've been friends forever. The clubs that we worked in the East End, and we were in the East End, it wasn't like it is right now. There were beautiful neon signs. I worked the Smiling Buddha. I worked the New Delhi. I worked T's Cabaret, which was Tommy's. Tommy had three bars. T's Cabaret was the first one. And that was right in Chinatown. And we made 50 bucks a week. When you work the Smiling Buddha, and we worked seven nights a week, and we did three shows a night, and I was the MC as well. And I worked with drag queens and strippers and would-be comedians and the singer, uh, who was me. So I got my training for real boot camp, working live clubs and working with all kinds of people. When you were in and around the clubs in Vancouver playing and in the chorus line, you met up with some very famous people of the time, including Johnny Cash. Absolutely. Being in the chorus line, I worked with Della Reese. I worked with Nancy Wilson. I worked with Marty Robbins, Johnny, probably a few more that I've forgotten. But I just recently had a little run-in with Johnny Cash and working with him. His manager was a guy named Saul Holoff. Saul told his son the story of when Johnny was at his worst and doing drugs and doing everything. He worked in Vancouver and he attacked a showgirl in the dressing room. That was me. And his son, Jonathan, started looking around and asking questions and saying, does anybody know this person? Saul, when he finished with Johnny moved to the island and went back to university. And then all of his memorabilia of Johnny Cash's, everything that he had, guitars, gold and platinum records, he had everything. And he dedicated all of that to the University of Victoria. And they asked me 
to come to the presentation and tell my story of what happened. He didn't sexually assault me. He physically assaulted me. Of course, now I'd be very rich if that happened, but I didn't know about drugs. I had no idea about drugs. I thought he was drunk. And they invited the two showgirls who had dressing rooms next to Johnny Cash's dressing room. Anyways, to make a long story short, he thought I called him a homosexual. And he reached down and grabbed my foot and slid me down and smashed my head and scraped my back. And of course, everybody went into panic mode because the showgirls were opening the show in eight minutes. So it's a bit of a crazy time. Everybody was standing me up and putting makeup on me and putting my headdress on. And are you okay? Are you okay? And I was like, I think so. So anyways, I went on and Saul told that story to everyone. And his son came looking for me and found me. So I just thought that was so cool that I got to be part of that little presentation. For some reason, they wanted me to tell that horrible story. And I made it funny. The funny part was that when they made the dresses, they put the bones in your in the upper part of you so that you, you look like your breast was huge. The showgirls would be stuffing toilet paper and socks and everything inside. So when he pulled me down, of course, all of that fell out of my costume. I made it funny by saying everybody was stuffing me back together. That was my little meeting with Johnny Cash. On your way to becoming a member of Skylark, you were a member of the Hawks, Ronnie Hawkins' band. David and I were both Hawks together. Here's the real story. I started having visions about Ronnie Hawkins. I didn't know who Ronnie Hawkins was. I had no clue. Who heard of Ronnie Hawkins? Nobody on this coast. The Rocky Mountains were like a velvet curtain. Anything east of the Velvet Curtain, we didn't know anything about. I knew that Ronnie was somehow associated with the band, but I certainly didn't know who he was. I'd never listened to his music. And he came to me a few times in a vision. I know that sounds spooky, but he did. He kept telling me to come to Toronto. And I was the lead singer with a band called Sweet Beaver. The leader of the band was Al Mickey. And he fired me. He said, BJ's driving me nuts with this Ronnie Hawkins thing. So I'm putting her on one month's notice. BJ, you go to Toronto and find Ronnie Hawkins because we're definitely not leaving. (laughs) You know, they had wives and kids and the musicians. I said, okay, I'm going to go and find Ronnie. True story. I'm sitting in the club. I'm on one month's notice. And David Foster walked in because I've known David. We're both from Victoria. I saw him come walking in with a guy named Jim Walchuk, Jim and Judy. This was a club called Diamond Gems, which became the Zanzibar. First of all, it was the torch. And David came and sat down and he was working with Tommy Banks. And he was in the house band and playing with all the great musicians in Edmonton. I said, what are you doing here? slumming and he said no i actually need your help he said i've just put this band together with this weird guy and we need a girl singer and i thought maybe you might know someone i didn't say i'd been fired from this band he said look you'd be the perfect person but i know you're never going to leave this band it's such a good band blah 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 so i said who's the guy and he said ronnie hawkins so i looked at him and i said you know what i'm on one month's notice 
And I told him the story about Ronnie coming to me and telling me to come to Toronto. So I ended up going to Edmonton because Ronnie was there. He was trying to put another super band together. Being that his first band became the band and his second band became the full tilt boogie band. Janice took his second band and, the band and Bob Dylan took his first band. So now he was ready to put another killer band together. Ronnie's probably the wisest, funniest, smartest man I've ever known. Ronnie Hawkins, brilliant guy from Arkansas. We met David. We became Hawks and we stayed on the road with Ronnie for about a year and a half. And then he fired David. He told us all lies. He told us we were going to live in luxurious suites and on Young Street. And we actually were in offices and we there were with no heat, no windows. Or, it was hilarious. And Ronnie was into boxing and he opened a gym that's where we lived, in the gym. Hugh Brocky, the guitar player, slept in the boxing ring. He took us into the gym and he said to David, Sean, he said, you play like Beethoven, but you look like a cadaver on stage. This is a rock and roll band, son, so I'm going to have to fire you. And David nearly fainted because he'd never been fired. He knew what his status was and everybody knew he was brilliant, but that was Ronnie's M.O., David wasn't the first person he let go because he knew that he was pushing him out of the nest kind of thing, not in a vicious way. Playing 40 days in my hillbilly rock and roll stuff is not for David Foster. After David got fired, we stayed in Toronto for about a month. And it was while we were there that I suggested that we put our own band together. We want to work together, and this is before we were married. I said, we want to be together, so let's put a band together. And he said, if you can get Doug Edwards, Steve Pugsley, and Kat Hendricks, I'll put a band together. When we came back, David went to Victoria. I had to stay in Vancouver. While I was there, I decided to call Doug, who I've known since he was 16 years old, I said, hey, look at David and I are trying to put a band together. He was in a great band with Terry Frewer called Spring. Little did I know they had just broken up. So they were all available. So I called David and I said, well, you better come back because I have Kat, I have Doug, and I have Steve. We've got our band. It was while we all got together and talked about the concept we wanted. Donnie wasn't around then. My sister Carolyn came in later, but we auditioned so many people because Crosby, Seals, Nash & Young were a huge influence on him, on all of us. He said, I'd like to have more than one singer. He said, no insult to you, but I get it. I'm a good singer, but I'm not Celine Dion. I think if I had been Celine Dion, he probably wouldn't have said that. But <laughs> we started auditioning people, and I kept talking about Donnie. I said, oh, my God, Donnie Jarrett, such a great singer. He was on the road with the Night Train Review. Then he came back to town. He left the Night Train Review. I scooped him up. I brought him in. So it was my sister, Carolyn, Donnie, and I who were the first three singers. And those are the singers that left to record the album. My sister only lasted for a couple of months. David, they didn't hit it off. Then that's when I got Carl to come in. Never thinking, and we never thought of ourselves as an integrated band. 
And that's why we never got airplay when we first put the album out, because there were no Black artists on the air at that time in Canada. There weren't any. And they didn't know what to do with us. We had a major record deal, and we had a hit record. Rosalie Tromley at CKLW used to listen to all the Black stations. From day one, they started playing Wildflower. So she heard that song, and it made her cry. She had three kids. She was a single mother, and she thought for sure that song was written for her. And the next day, she made sure that we got airplay. Without her, we wouldn't have been getting a star on the Walk of Fame because she put us on the map. September the 17th, they erected a statue of her in Windsor, a beautiful statue. It's pretty amazing. So we get recognized, and she gets a statue. BJ, tell me about the song, Wildflower itself. I understand it started as a poem. Yeah, Dave Richardson was David's really good friend. He was a cop, and he used to sit in his patrol car and write lyrics. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they told me that Dave had given their band the song, and they thought it was too mushy or something. So then he took it over to Doug Edwards with a stack of lyrics or poems. Doug looked at Wildflower, and he said, I wrote it in 20 minutes. He said, I just felt it. I loved it. I just thought it was the most beautiful song. Uh, He presented it at one of the rehearsals. And even when we were doing it, we knew that it was a really good song, but we had no idea exactly how good it was. When we got the record deal, they put us in a house. We rehearsed every day for at least five or six hours, every single day. The rest, as they say, is history. They say the greatest form of flattery is imitation. That song has been recorded literally hundreds of times by musicians of various genres. It shows up on songs by Tupac Shakur, Kanye West, Drake, Jamie Foxx, Johnny Mathis, and the OJs, just to name four or five. The only people that make money are the writers. Doug and and Dave Richardson both made a small fortune, but we didn't make any money. They offered us, by the way, the publishing. We didn't know anything. Who knew about publishing? That wasn't a big deal back then. When Today in BC continues, BJ Cook talks songwriting, dating Robin Williams and her daughter Amy Foster. We'll also listen into that single from Skylark, Wildflower. From hidden local hotspots to outrageous wildlife rescues and trend-setting hotels, westcoasttraveler.com shares the latest travel news from your local community and beyond. Travel the spectacular west coast of the U.S. and Canada without leaving your armchair and start taking notes for your next adventure. Make your next vacation or staycation the best it can be. Visit westcoasttraveler.com. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. I'm Peter McCulley. BJ, as a songwriter, you've had the opportunity to collaborate with some well-known songwriters over the years. We could go back to Donovan, Michael McDonald, Dominic Troiano, Brenda Russell, just to name a few. Michael McDonald and I wrote the single that he did with Nicolette Larson. And Brenda Russell was also just a struggling writer. Her and her husband, Brian Russell, at the time, And Brenda, this year, 
at Christmas, her movie comes out that she wrote the music for, The Color Purple, on Broadway and won a Tony Award. And the movie comes out Christmas Day, produced by Oprah, directed by Spielberg, music by Quincy. It's going to be a huge movie. This is what I've always said about me. I'm just one of those people that I've been in the shadow or in the presence of greatness from day one. I'm not saying I didn't have any talent, but I've been around the greatest talent. I mean, just some of the best people. Dominic Triano and I wrote the theme songs for Night Heat and Airwaves and a whole bunch of TV shows. So I managed somehow to always scrape by, get through. I was surprised when I Googled on YouTube the theme for Night Heat because usually these themes are 30 seconds long, but this was actually a whole song. Did you see the video of it too? Yes, I did, yeah. It's a really good song. And Roy Kenner, that was a great band, the Mandela. And Dominic Troiano came into my life when I was working at the Elegant Parlor. I'd work from nine to one at Diamond Gems with Sweet Beaver and then start my after hours gig from two till four at the Elegant Parlor. We had the house band there with a cast of thousands. Jim McGilvery, Ron Johnson, Tom Hazlitt and Freddie Ardeal. It was an amazing club because you'd look over there and the Temptations would be there or Diana Ross. Anybody that was working in Vancouver came to the Elegant Parlor after hours. And once again, another magic time that, and I just happened to be there and our guitar player got carpal. His hand was messed up. So we were down to a trio And this guy with a tam came in, and I didn't know who he was. Nobody did. And he said, do you mind if I sit in with you guys? These guys were excellent players. You wouldn't walk up to a really good band and ask to sit in unless you could play, right? So he got up and humbled us in about three seconds. What a player he was. Oh, my gosh. He was just amazing. So then we stayed in touch. When he started getting the TV shows, he asked me to collaborate. I'm a lyricist, and usually what happens is somebody will send you a melody and maybe mention what they had in mind that was a love song or it was a breakup song. I stopped writing when my daughter, she became a writer. My daughter, to me, is one of the greatest lyricists ever. She's actually working with her dad on the Broadway show that David's doing. She's written quite a few of the songs on that, too. You dated Robin Williams. I'll tell you how that happened. A girl from Victoria, a really good friend of mine, Jacqueline Sampson. She was working in a big restaurant in Victoria, and somebody headhunted her and asked her to come down and manage the comedy club on Sunset Boulevard. So she was my best friend, and I was living down there. So I would go, David and I were no longer together, of course, And I would go down to the clubs on the weekend. Everybody from David Letterman to Jay Leno, Robin, Michael Keaton, everybody that wanted to be a comedian. Richard Pryor was there. Everybody came in. And so I got to meet all the comedians. And Robin Williams, he was just a funny little dude. He never was not Robin Williams. That's one of the reasons I couldn't be with him anymore because he was definitely destined for something. 
Mark and Mindy were on in, the, in our second date. I took him uh, and introduced him to Amy. She was maybe seven years old. I got rid of the babysitter and I woke her up and I said, hey, somebody wants to meet you. And there was Mark. <laughs> I asked Siri to look you up on the internet, and I found some interesting pictures. There was a, a photo of you and Bill Clinton. What's the story there? Once again, Ronnie Hawkins. Ronnie's at the base of just about everything fabulous is that ever happened to me. He and Bill are both from Fayetteville, Arkansas, and they've known each other forever. And Ronnie was very ill. They didn't expect him to live. And David plays golf with President Clinton. I have quite a few pictures of that night of all of us. I was in charge and there were no press. I had a video camera. I actually have on video President Clinton singing, I've been so many places in my life and time. He's singing that to Ronnie. Paul Anka rewrote My Way and put a really funny line. I have all that on film. He and Ronnie are best friends. And what a wonderful, charismatic man he was. I found out that they have Secret Service guys till they die. I said to him, should I call you Mr. President? I never call him Bill. Ronnie calls him the Gov because he was the governor before he was the president. Everything that happened to me in my life springboarded from Ronnie Hawkins. I get to chat with Ronnie Hawkins about, well, it's probably more than 25 years ago now. Time kind of slips away. I was asking him about the moonwalk, which was, in those days, the camel walk. And for the younger podcast listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, they need to Google on YouTube Ronnie Hawkins because he does a camel walk. I think James Brown used to do it as well. It was kind of a popular dance in the Midwest at some point. Yeah. Michael Jackson took little bits of that and incorporated it into his moonwalk. Ronnie has so many stories, especially about Johnny Cash, because they were on the road. He and Elvis, their birthdays are two days apart. He played the hillbilly really well, and he wanted people to think he was a hillbilly. He was a really smart, funny guy. And David, when I've heard David talk about his past, he says he learned so much from Ronnie. If you had dirty fingernails, you didn't get on stage. You had to have shiny shoes. Everybody had to have a black suit on. And he demanded respect and he demanded that you be on time. You never took a cigarette or a drink up on the stage. He used to say, this is your job. He said, if you were a doctor, would you be sitting around with a cigarette? He made everybody really aware that it was a business that we were in. And David talks about that a lot, about what he learned from Ronnie. BJ, you were recently presented with a star on the BC Entertainment Hall of Fame's Star Walk for the Skylark Wildflower. Tell us about mm -hmm. the event. Okay, if I'm going to be perfectly honest, when Howard called me at the beginning of this year, and he said, BJ, we're going to give Skylark a star. And I said, oh, first of all, I have to tell you the truth. I didn't even know there was a Vancouver Walk of Fame. I had no idea. I knew there was a big one in Toronto. And David just got a star in Hollywood, which I was invited to that. That was lovely. And I, I, I was at his uh, induction in Toronto and David's. Both of them got us, uh, not at the same time. But I had no clue there was one in Vancouver. And then I got online and saw that 300 people have been inducted. Loverboy, Nickelback, 
Vicky Gabbro has one. Michael Bublé has one. I had no clue. So I think with David being there and all the press, I think people will know about the Vancouver's Walk of Fame. And uh, I really take my hat off to Bill Ullman and Howard Blank, because I, I think it's important that Canada celebrates its musical people, because we've been contributing all along, but we're Canadians, eh? When we talk about that song, Wildflower, I read somewhere that the song was recorded in one take, which today is virtually unheard of. The reason that Wildflower is a hit is because of Rosalie putting it on the air and all that. But the combination of David's amazing arrangement, and that's the other thing that everybody has to realize. When you listen to that album, this is before any electronic music. This was all live strings. David wrote every string part. He was 23 years old. He was a kid. And the magic of his arrangement of Wildflower, the beautiful song that it is, and then on top of it, Donnie Gerard's magnificent voice. If anybody else could have sung it, I don't think it would have been the hit that it was. I think the combination of all those things made it a hit record. And then Donnie left, and he was with Mavis Staple on the road for years and years. But I I always want to give him his due, because what a voice. And a Canadian, one of the first Black recognized artists in Canada. I didn't cry at all until we were above to get the star. We're looking down. David had his. I had mine. And then they played Wildflower. I lost it completely. Most women do. It's an anthem for us. She's faced the hardest times you could imagine. And many times her eyes fought back the tears. about to fall in Each time her slender shoulders bore the weight of all her fears and a sorrow no one hears still rings in midnight silence in her ears Let her cry She's a child Let the rain fall down upon her She's a free and gentle flower Growing wild And if by chance I should hold her Let me hold her for the time but if allowed just one possession, I would pick her away from the garden to be For she'll awaken 
daughter Amy Foster has become an accomplished songwriter. I remember reading the liner notes on Michael Bublé's hit Home and seeing that the lyrics were written by Foster. And knowing the album was produced by David Foster, I made the assumption that David wrote the songs, but not knowing it was Amy. Just let me say that David has never believed in nepotism. And Amy got the job. He said, I'll give you a chance to write this. I'm just putting your name in the hat kind of thing. And because he had several other people and Michael loved her lyrics the best. She also wrote, I just haven't met you yet. She wrote all three of his hits and then she became an author. So she has three books out as well. BJ, you've been around the music business a long time. What advice would you have for young singer songwriters trying to hone their craft? The music industry as we knew it is done. There is no such thing. Now you put your own record together and you take it to a label. Completely done. They are mostly now distributors. When we were with Capitol Records on every floor, there was a publisher, there was a press guy, there was songwriters, and every floor had a, a different branch, which reminds me that they had to start a brand when they signed Skylark because there were no black anything. So here's what I found out from Jordan, Prakash's son. There's now these things called content rooms. In your house, you make a studio. They call them content rooms. And you get great sound, you get great lighting, and you make your own records. Prakash and Jordan totally blew my mind because these new bunch of kids have wiped out the middleman completely. They make their own records in their own content rooms. They can fill an auditorium or an arena in certain towns, and no one's ever heard of them, except this underground movement that's happening in the music industry now. It's all gone underground. So these really talented kids have decided to just take it in their own hands. 
When I advise, I tell the kids the same things. You are now the captain of your fate and the masters of your soul, for sure. You make your own records. You don't expect anybody to do anything for you. It's up to you to get it on TikTok. It's up to you to get it on Facebook. You're your own boss. You're in charge of your career. And if you want it bad enough, because it's very hard work, you might get through. If I'm going to be totally honest, if any one of my grandkids just came to me and said they wanted to be in the music business, I might not be so happy about it. I'm very grateful to everything I have because of music. I was very lucky to live in a time when there was a ton of support for artists and music and songwriters. There just isn't anymore. So it's up to you. You get your own audience. You get your own room. You make your own sound. You put your own record together. And then you promote it yourself. And if you can do all that, then you might have a chance. B.J. Cook of Skylark has been our guest on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Searching for a new home? Make todayshomebc.com your online home base. With easy-to-search listings and connections to local realtors, everything you need is under one roof. Powered by Black Press Media, you can search hundreds of local listings all in one place. Access the top real estate professionals to help you find the perfect home today at todayshomebc.com.